Hi, my name is Keith Bowes and I'm the Managing Director for Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources owns the Kalakira uranium mine, which is located in Malawi in Africa. It is a past producing asset, operated between 2009 and 2014, and produced about 11 million pounds of uranium during that period. Lotus acquired the asset of Paladin Energy in early 2020. The asset is currently on care and maintenance, but uh, Lotus has been doing a lot of work in terms of what's going to be required to restart the asset back up again, with the expectation that we'll be able to sell our product into the ever-improving uranium market. Keith, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, <clears throat> a year ago, you produced your feasibility study, um, your DFS, and at the time you said you were going to um, come up with a FID, a final investment decision, probably by the end of the year. Uh, plus, uh, in your latest presentation, you 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 talk about um, hitting the button on the FID when you hit when the uranium price is at the appropriate level. Obviously, the the end of the year has been and gone, and the uranium price uh, is fifty three fifty four dollars per pound in the spot market. What do you think it's going to take to get to your level, and what is the what is that level? So I think we've been very very clear all the way along that FID is dependent on the uranium price. We certainly don't want to be in a position where we start the mine up and end up selling uranium at a lower price than what we think could be potentially be achievable by waiting for an extra period of time. So we do know and we've had a look at it, as you've said, the uranium price has been steadily improving over the last year. If you look at something like term contracts or so, and you look back probably a year or so, term contracts have been signed at around $45 per pound. The latest contracts that we are aware of have been signed at that $53, $54 per pound mark. So it's increased by almost $10 per pound over the last year. We would like to still see it a little bit higher than that uh, before we make FID. But we do recognize that what we consider to be a good price is probably sort of in that mid-60 range. $65 per pound would be a good price. And that's what I think most of the other uh, developers, brownfield projects are talking about. But that $65 per pound is an average over the life of mine. We acknowledge we could start up with a little bit lower price than that, especially in the early years when we're producing a lot more uranium at a much lower cost, we'd still be profitable at a slightly lower price than that. But we're then wanting to see a $65 per pound price or higher in the latter end of the production schedule. Well, it's that that's a really key point because... Um by waiting for a uranium price, you're, you're waiting for something which is not really in your control. Whereas what you can control are your actions. And, and um, you know, the bits that you can control is that you can calculate what is a, uh, or estimate what your operating costs are going to be and your, um, your overheads. I mean, in the feasibility you study, you talk about uh, cash costs of being $37 per pound and all in sustaining costs of just under $38 a pound. Our cash costs were $29, $30 per pound. Yes. And the all in sustaining costs were 36 for the first seven years and 37 for the life of mine. Well, well there we go. I mean, it, that, that's, it, it even um, further kind of proves the point that you could perhaps cover your costs by, I don't know, um, taking out some contracts to, to ensure that you're not going to lose money. And that would give you because I think it's a 15-month um, development um, line, isn't it? So That's correct, yes. 15 months from when we make FID. 
to be able, or 15 months for us to refurbish the plant from when we make the decision to go ahead with the refurbishment. I mean, how often do you kind of revisit that? You know, when when do we go? When do we go? Because um, what I, I noticed in your feasibility study, you don't include an IRR number or, or an NPV number. So it's kind of, you, you, you've got the kind of cards, you know, you're holding the cards and th- that internal discussion around the, around the board, you know, when when do you go? Is it, do you feel that that's kind of imminent or is it still a way away? I do think it is imminent. So when we're talking about making FID, I mean, obviously the uranium price is an absolutely critical one for that. But there are a number of other things that we would like in place before we make FID or at least be well advanced so that we have confidence that within a relatively short time of having made FID, we will get these things in place. And there I'm referencing things like the mine development agreement. I'm referencing things like the agreement with the Malawian electricity um, utility that we can connect to the national grid. I'm talking about some offtakes as well. Because I think there's a couple of things. I mean, and this is a bit of a chicken and an egg situation. I'm sure everyone else in my position is talking about the same thing as well. Is that I think it's really important that we want to be up and operating and producing uranium when the peak comes. And we know when we look at the history of the uranium price, there always comes in cycles. And I don't think you want to be in a position where you're making your FID at the top of the cycle. Because by the time you come online again, you've probably come off that peak from that cycle. So you actually want to be in a position where you've actually started to produce and you're in production when that peak comes and you can maximize the benefit from that. So that's sort of what's playing in our mind at the moment. But we still have a minimum level of which we would like to contract at. And we are getting very, very close to that number such that we can actually protect ourselves or at least get a cover of our costs. Because one of the things we have spoken about is the way you contract or the way you put your pricing mechanism within the contract, there's a number of different options out there. So for a really simple example, there's one that's called a base escalated contract, where you choose a base price, and that might be $55, $56, $57 per pound, something like that. And it gets escalated every year by either some index, whether that be CPI or even a fixed amount, say 3 or 4% per year. Now, that gives you a lot of certainty in terms of the price that you're going to get as you move forward for the project. And when you speak to the debt financiers, that's what they really like. But if you speak to some of our shareholders, they want exposure to the the price, to the spot price going forward. So they're saying, no, we want you to sign another type of contract, which has got a pricing mechanism that's called a market-related contract. And in those pricing mechanisms, what you've got, the price that you receive on the month that you deliver your product is say a combination of the spot price, the term price, and maybe even there's a fixed component in there. So you do get exposure to that to that spot price, but you don't get the full peaks of it. But again, you're protected on the downside. If the spot price does crash for some reason, you're protected by your term price and by your fixed component there as well. So there's a, there's a lot of things that have been taken into consideration in terms of, well, how do we contract? What um, strategy do we want to use around our contracting? And also, what is the timing of that? And we are starting to get close to it from a pricing perspective. But as I mentioned, there are these other things that we would like to be able to have completed or well progressed before making the FID as well. Uh, well, let's 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 go through those. Let's go through the kind of the list. Um, you provided a very convenient list in uh, presentation earlier in the year, um, <clears throat> or perhaps it was later last year. But so I've got these kind of six things uh, to go through. Um, 
Uh, one is the, the, the mine development agreement with the government, which is setting the fiscal terms and the royalty and the, uh, the tax rate. Could you tell me kind of where you are in that process and, and what, the, kind of the, yeah, what, what the finer points of the discussion are over? Sure. So we've been negotiating with the government now for a little over a year, I would say, although really in earnest since the beginning of this year when the government point, um, appointed some uh, lawyers, some UK-based lawyers to assist them with the negotiations. Now, if you look back at the history of what's happened, when Paladin was operating Calacara in that period from 2009 to 2014, they had a mine development agreement in place that set the fiscal regime in which it's operated. However, the Mining Act since then has changed. We've also had a change of government as well. So what's happened is that the government, as part of our renewal of our mining licenses, said, listen, the old MDA that Paladin had has actually expired. It had a 10-year period to it. We recognize the importance of an MDA and we would like to renegotiate one with you. However, because the Mining Act's changed and there's some other things that we have, we don't want to just roll over the old MDA. We want to start the process of having a negotiation about it. And we were quite happy with that. We have, as our intention is to achieve a very, very similar outcome to what the original MDA had, but it may look slightly different in terms of the levers that we pull. Maybe, you know, the royalty won't be as reduced as much or there's other things that we'll have a look at. But overall, we're looking for the same sort of result coming from it because that's what we need, we think, to be able to make the decision or at least to make an early decision to start the project up. There's always the case that you could have where we say, okay, we don't need an MDA, but let's wait for a while longer until the price, the uranium price is 85 or $90 per pound, and we enter into the market then and we can exist on the existing fiscal regime. But that's not our intention at this stage. We would like to get an MDA that sets a fiscal regime that is competitive in the market and allows us to start the operations as soon as the prices hit those 60s or something like that, or uh, late 50s. Wouldn't you think that the securing your fiscal terms and kind of getting an agreement signed and stamped and sealed and approved is critical in getting finance? I mean, is, 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 do, you, do you think you can raise the finance without having an MDA? Well, as I said, that's where that comes to the timing thing. I think with an MDA in place that shows the concessions that we could potentially get, certainly having that document, I think, will make financing a lot easier for us. However, there is already the existing fiscal regime that's set by the Tax Act and the Mining Act and all those types of things. And if we were in a position where we had a much higher uranium price, then maybe that would still be an attractive option for us to go forward with. But that's sort of plan B, let's say. Plan A is definitely get an MDA in place. What does the, uh, the current fiscal regime, the, the, the mining code, uh, indicate in terms of taxes and royalties? Kind of, uh, well, you've got a 30%, at a really high level, you've got a 30% tax rate, uh, corporate tax rate. You pay a 5% royalty. There's uh, some withholding tax required on things like interest payments and all those types of things. Um, there's a limit on how far you can carry your carry forward tax losses. And there is what they call a resource rental tax as well. So resource rental tax is like an additional tax when you become profitable, when you reach a certain uh, profitable threshold, then this additional tax comes in as well. But one of the other things we've got as well is that the government currently owns 15% of the mine, and that was what was agreed to back with Paladin back in 2008. However, according to the new mining legislation, which came in after the MDA was signed, the government um, is talking about a 10% ownership. So there's an opportunity there to reduce their ownership down to 10% to comply with the law, but then getting some other things as well. So those are the sorts of things we're discussing. And we have a non-binding term sheet in place that the government and ourselves have um, signed off on. 
and that MD, uh, that term sheet is what's form, is formed the basis of our dis- current discussions with with the UK lawyers. Is is the thirty percent income tax, five percent royalty? Is that um, more or less competitive than the the um, agreement that the the MDA that Paladin had? So Paladin, what they got in 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 providing the government with a fifteen percent sharehold in the mine, they got a two and a half percent discount on the tax rate, so down to twenty seven and a half percent. And they got their royalty down to three percent. Yeah, I mean these these small things do affect um, do affect kind of financial outcomes. So it's it, it it it's always good to try and remove uncertainty at, at, at wherever possible. And um, I noticed that you didn't include your um, I, I mean I mentioned this earlier. You didn't include an IRR or NPV in your was well, not easily visible in your press releases or your um, DFS presentations. Is, is is that linked to this uncertainty around the the fiscal regime? I think there's two things on it. First of all. We didn't have any contracts in place and also, you know, what price are you going to use? I suppose the accepted norm in the industry is to use $65 per pound. But again, you know, I think when you talk a lot of to a lot of different analysts, a lot of different brokers, they have their own view on what that uranium price will look like over time. So we thought it'd be better to provide all of the input information, let's say, let the analysts, let the brokers, let the investors apply their own uranium pricing uh, concept to those numbers to determine what the revenue would be. And as you've mentioned, I mean, we are in this MDA discussion. There are lots of different levers within the fiscal regime. We certainly, when we announced the uh, the feasibility study, we didn't have a term sheet in place that outlined what we were trying to achieve. So we decided on the back of those two points, let's just provide the input data that's required for these financial models and let the analysts and everyone else make their assumptions about what those pricing is. And if they want to, they can reference the Malawian legislation to see what the existing fiscal regime looks like. Uh, in some ways, I uh, applaud the approach of not putting those numbers in because I've always thought it very strange in the uranium industry that everyone just picks a price which is way out of kilter of the spot price. I mean, just two years ago when the spot price was below $30 a, a pound, people were still putting out uh, presentations with NPVs on 60 $65 a pound. And it's it like, wow. Wow, any other industry you'd get um, laughed out of the room for picking a price more than two times of the 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 the, the spot market. But um, uranium's always been a special case. It has, but we've even noticed uh, with some of the other companies out there who have put a price on it, the ASX has actually come back quite hard on them in terms of what's the basis of you guys selecting that price. So you know, I mean, as I said, sixty-five is generally considered by the industry to be the average. But, you know, that's just the consensus of the industry at the moment. I mean, everyone expects the price to run, but is 65 the right number or is it too low? I mean, lots of people are telling me $65 per pound is actually too low. We should be looking at 70 or $75 per pound as well. And those sort of things make an absolutely huge difference when you're calculating your IRRs and your uh, and, and your NPVs on the project. Coming back to the, the, the government and the negotiation and the lawyers and um, um, that level of uncertainty. And I, and I know it's, uh, you've got the kind of the backstop of the current fiscal regime and that's fine. Um, but it would be nice to have the clarity of an MDA. Do, have you got any indication on timing on that? Um, yeah, so I mean, we have been working on on it for a long time. We have been engaged with the lawyers for a while now. And one of the approaches we've taken with the lawyers is that we've said, 
instead of jumping right into, you know, what should the royalty be? What should the tax rate be? What are we going to do around withholding taxes and all that kind of stuff? It would be very, very useful to do a benchmarking exercise of what are the other mining jurisdictions regimes look like? Because one must remember is that Malawi is not a, a well-known mining jurisdiction. Uh, Kalakira mine was really the only large-scale commercial mine that's ever operated there. So the opportunity for the government and the Department of Mines and all that to start to get an understanding of what other regimes are offering from a fiscal regime perspective to be able to develop a mining industry we thought was really important. So you can look at countries like Botswana, you can look at Namibia, you can look at South Africa, you can look at Zambia as areas that have got very well-known mining, you know, mining industries going on there that are well supported by the investor. What does their fiscal regime look like? How does that compare to the Malawian fiscal regime? And what changes should we then look at so that Malawi also becomes a very, very attractive destination for mining, for investment dollars and all that kind of stuff. And that's the exercise we've just completed doing now. I was actually in a meeting with the lawyers earlier this week going for the final version of that to demonstrate that what we're proposing in the term sheet of our mine development agreement aligns very, very well with what's sitting in these other jurisdictions that are well known and well supported by the investors going forward. So we're very, very encouraged by that. And the lawyers are acknowledging those, those types of comments as well. So that'll be the feedback back to the government to say, listen, what's being proposed is very, very reasonable and is not out of kilter of what would occur in another country that is also looking to, you know, to, to, to have a new mine startup. Uh, it's, it's almost a pity that the, you weren't in the conversation of setting the mining code uh, for the country, <laughs> because, you know, one hopes that that is how a mining code is set. You look at the, the regions and you try to attract investment. Correct. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I mean, the government is certainly acknowledging that they realize that what they want to do and i think one of the conversations that i've had previously and i've certainly spoken about this at length with the investors and all that malawi is a poor country it's its industry was originally based around agriculture and specifically around tobacco and as you can imagine now tobacco is not flavor of the year or flavor of the decade in terms of a product to be selling so the malawian government is looking for alternative industries that they can use to drive the economy. And they have very, very openly stood up and said, mining is one of those key industries. We wanna be developing our mining industry. We know we've got some good projects here. We've got abundant resources. What can we do to try and start up a mining industry that will then benefit Malawi as it moves forward? Well, good. Well, um, all power to them. Um, and hopefully you can get your agreement. Are, are you thinking um, in months or by the end of the year or? months is our, is, our, is our perception at the moment. As I said, we do have this really solid background information now. We have a non-binding term sheet in place. We have an MDA effectively drafted up that's ready to go. We just need to go to the next step and the government needs to work through their processes to be able to sign that documentation off. Okay, good. Now, on, on the list of things that uh, you, you wanted to do before FID, there was finance and offtake agreements, but I think I'll park those for the moment. We'll come back to them. And the other one was um, the, the ESCOM, the grid connection, the, the, the power agreement. Um, I also noticed that in the, um, when you were uh, in your 
feasibility presentation from last year, you were talking about improvements to the power plant anyway as one of the kind of the problem areas that you had kind of really focused on. So perhaps kind of let's talk about energy and those commercial agreements. Yeah, sure. So when the mine was operating previously, it operated off 100% diesel gensets. So we recognized that instantly. We said, well, listen, if the diesel price sits somewhere between a dollar and a dollar twenty, so that's a US dollar and a US dollar twenty, we know the diesel gensets produce power at around 35 US cents per kilowatt hour. We know that power accounts for about 20% of the original C1 cash cost. So the original C1 cash cost that Paladin was operating was around $35 per pound. So $7 of that cash cost was purely due, due to energy. We started to look at some other options out there. Now we had a conversation with ESCOM, which is the Malawian utility, you know, what is the availability of power on the grid? Where can we connect onto it and all those types of things? And ESCOM says there is power available on the grid. There's not as much as we need. There's about four megawatts, which is probably about 65% of our total need would be available at Karonga. So Karonga is the nearest town. It's about 50 kilometers by road, but 20 kilometers as the crow flies. So the discussions with ESCOM is around actually the installation of a new transmission line, upgrades to the substation, and actually going back through the backbone of the network to do some improvements on it as well, so that we can increase the reliability and the availability of power to Karonga that we can then use it more. So that was one component of our power discussions. The other one was we recognize the opportunity for solar. Solar is always a good option and battery storage as well. But also we have an acid plant on site. We know acid plants produce a lot of heat when they burn the sulfur. We know that we can retrofit a steam turbine onto our acid plant to recover power. And effectively the power that comes from that unit costs us nothing because we're already burning the sulfur to make the sulfuric acid. We're just recovering the heat and converting that into electricity. So this combined system we're calling the hybrid power system. And we've been able to reduce that price of power down from a diesel genset at 35 down to around 10 cents per kilowatt hour. So a very, very significant uh, decrease in our power consumption. But also importantly, from an ESG or from a climate perspective, we've also been able to eliminate, eliminate a significant amount of CO2 emissions. I mean, we've been able to reduce our CO2 emissions by almost 75% by moving away from the diesel gensets. And one of the reasons we're able to uh, rely on that is we know the grid is a very, very green power source. Most of the power in Malawi actually comes from hydropower, which we know is green. So we're getting a lot of credits for that as well. And the discussions we're having around ESCOM now are how are we gonna connect to the grid? What are the requirements in terms of upgrade, transmission, new substations, and all those types of things? And to add further flavor to the discussions, ESCOM has said that they don't have the money to be able to implement these changes. And what they're asking us to do is to provide the financing for it, to probably construct and project manage that construction, and then hand over the transmission line to them to operate and maintain. But in order for us to do that, we've agreed that ESCOM will then provide us with a reduced tariff such that we can recover the capital costs that we've put in up front to be able to develop that transmission line and those types of things. So those where the negotiations are with ESCOM, we've uh, had a number of meetings with them. Um, we've got now a technical working group 
and a commercial working group set up there to discuss the two components. What do we need to do and how are we going to set up our power purchase agreement to be able to deliver that? So again, we want to see those progressed such to a point that we're confident we are going to have an agreement uh, before we make the FID. Um, thank you. That's that's a really, I'm, <laughs> I wasn't expecting such an interesting answer with so many kind of different components. Um, three things jump out at me. One is um, the timing to get that agreement. You know, how long, how far, you know, how long will it take for you to reach in a point where you've got clarity on the numbers, both in terms of um, the capital requirement that you'll be asked to be putting into it. And then, then there's the kind of an implementation number, you know, how long is it going to take to deliver? And will that fit in with, does that change your first production? Um, uh, no, it doesn't. I think because of the timing that we had a look at, because this was already incorporated in our feasibility study. So we already have a budgetary price, let's say, for this electrical work, which is 13 million US dollars to do everything that is required. So that's already included in it. We're just going back now and firming up those prices. We've also had some indication from ESCOM and through some of the or contractors that we're aware of that within the 15-month period that we're required to do the refurbishment of the plant, they will be able to execute the new transmission line and the upgrades to the substation. But as part of the technical committee work that's ongoing now, it's firming or confirming those assumptions but those were the, that was the best information that we had available back when we put the feasibility study together. So the actual restart of the project, the critical path does not run through the electrical stuff at this stage. Right. And the, and the $13 million, you're not expecting that to change much? Um, um, I think we need to go back and have a look at it. We do know the price of copper has gone up. So there is an option, there's a potential ups, uh, increase on that side. But again, the question we're asking is that the original design followed the road, so the 50 kilometers from Karonga along the main road and down our road compared to 20 kilometers as a straight line. What's stopping us going the 20 kilometer route? My expectation is that the ESCOM is going to come back and say, but if we go the other way, then some of the villages and all that kind of stuff could also benefit from the line. And from an ESG perspective, that's probably something that we would be okay with. But there are some other alternatives or there's some some options out there that we could use to actually decrease the cost. Okay, got it. And uh, timing, uh, how, how the negotiations going? Um, it, 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 is it going to fit in with the um, mine development agreement? I think it's probably going to roll on a little bit past the mine development agreement is my gut feel. But again, if we've got a level of confidence that we're going to achieve the agreement with uh, costs, with timelines, with uh, tariffs, etc., that fit in with our original uh, uh, concepts, then I think we'd be quite happy to make FID prior to getting the final execution of those documents, as long as we've progressed them enough, such that we know where the endpoint is and what that endpoint could look like. But we're talking again, it's months away. So probably that one is maybe, you know, fourth quarter, potentially, I would think for the for the ESCOM deal or ESCOM agreement. It's funny, isn't it? You've got to get all of these things, you've got to get everything ready or just at the right time. It's like, um, it's a whole kind of series of, um, I don't know if you've ever watched a sailing race. You know, you've got the line, which is the start line, and all of the ships are trying to be just there right at the beginning. So when the hooter goes, they can all they can all go. Because yeah. other things you've got to do are the, um, you've got to have an operational readiness plan. You've got to have your front end uh, engineering design um, and kind of a, almost kind of have your program of early works organized. 
So Correct. perhaps kind of a comment or a tree about those kind of those aspects of planning. So from the feed perspective, obviously we've got a feasibility study out there. We've gone back to all of our consultants who did the feasibility study and say, listen, we need to take this to the next stage. Um, they, we've, we've got a, a scope of work agreed with them. We've got budget quite or budgets from them in order to be able to do the feed. We're just waiting now to start that up to to actually kick that off. What we're trying to do with the feed is really suppose it's around three things. First of all, we quoted in our feasibility study an initial capital of $88 million plus a pre-production cost of $12 million to give us a total of $100 million. I want the feed program to confirm that number and basically to give us a controlled budget on which we will execute the refurbishment program on. We also want to go back, we talk about this 15 months for the refurbishment there is a schedule that has been put together that 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 has generated that 15 months, but we need to dive into more detail now in terms of what are the various pieces of work that need to do. How are we going to schedule those pieces of work to really confirm that 15 months is a realistic target for us to be looking at? And then lastly, I think there's an opportunity for us to go back and have a look at the operating costs. One of the things I have made comments about previously is we have this $29 10 cents C1 cash cost for our first seven years of operation, which was generated based on inputs for reagents and all that kind of stuff, freight costs back in June, July, and August of last year. If anyone remembers what the market looked like in that period of time, freight costs were probably triple or quadruple what they normally are. We were seeing lots of massive prices, uh, price inflation in that environment. There's almost a chance, I think, if we go back and have a look at those prices now, there may actually be an opportunity for us to get a smaller, a further decrease in that operating cost, which I think everyone would welcome as well. So we've got that included in it. And then it's also getting to a point, which you've mentioned already, there will be some long lead items that we require, and it would be good to be able to get those vendors selected, be able to have the agreements in place, potentially to kick them off with some of the early work, such that when we do make FID, we've actually got some of those long lead items already in the queue and ready to go. Who, who would want to build the mine? There's a lot to organize. <laughs> there's a lot to organize, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also um, finance and offtake to, to, to organize as well. So um, in terms of that $100 million, uh, what are you thinking in terms of uh, equity raise, just in terms of how much are you going to debt finance? You know, what, what are your thoughts on financing that hundred million dollars and, and timing again? And what are the so the financing and the offtake are quite closely linked in some ways. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things we're considering. We do know that some of our peers, like Paladin and Boss Resources, they raised all of the money for their refurbishment via the equity market. And we know that when we did our raise last year, we went to the market and raised $25 million. We were very well oversubscribed. And sort of the feeling we have is that if we wanted to do it via equity, we could. But we do recognize there would be a dilution of our existing shareholders, which they never like. But I think an equity raise is certainly possible. And unless it's largely supported by your existing shareholders, I mean, then it's not dilution. Sure. It's just... Um... They will um, then participate pro rata, correct? Yeah, yeah. it's growth capital. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. So that is an option for us. Um, we have had a look at some debt financing at a very high level. There's a couple of things we pick up with the debt financing. First of all, it's very expensive these days. It's certainly a lot more expensive than what I'm familiar with a couple of years ago. I mean, cost of debt could be anywhere between 12 and 15% if you went out for it today. 
We also know that from a debt financing perspective, they are much more interested in our offtake than our equity finances would be. And they would probably push us in a direction of trying to sign these uh, base escalated contracts where there's um, you know, much more certainty about the price that we will receive when we start operating again. So there's that sort of thing that we're having a look at with the debt stuff. We have been presented with some other options as well. And some of the traders out there, and even some of the utilities through various arms and all that, would be willing to give us an upfront payment for production. So they would fund part of the capital with the expectation that they would then receive their pounds of uranium over, say, a five-year period or a six-year period for them to recover their uranium costs, uh, their, uh, uh, their upfront payment. And very similar to that, there's, a, there's some streaming options and all that kind of stuff out there as well. So I think there are a number of options that we can pursue. We have started, we've discussed this with a number of entities. We're starting to formulate our plan going forward. My expectation is we'll sort of end up with something that's maybe majority equity, but relying either on some upfront payments or maybe some small debt or maybe some streaming components associated with it as well. And when we talk about the capital, there's obviously the upfront capital, the pre-production capital, but we also recognize a working capital need as well. Because in the uranium space, the time from when you produce your uranium to when you get paid for that uranium is probably a lot longer than most other commodities. And we need to make sure we've got enough working capital available to us when we start production so we can fill that gap. And it's that working capital that might be put into the debt or maybe into the, um, into the prepayment or something like that. Those are the ways that we're thinking at the moment. A rough percentage in terms of uh, on top of the 100, you're looking at 20, 30 million dollars of working 20, capital? Yeah. 20. 20, I think, yeah. Sort of that Thank you. It's been a it's <laughs> it's been an intense session. We've kind of gone through lots of detail. Um, just in terms of uh, kind of signaling signaling to the the market in terms of what the news flow is going to look like for the rest of the year. You've got just over six months to go. We've got seven months to go. Um, could you kind of just block out what you're looking to uh, d deliver prior to FID? So there's obviously the update on the mine development agreement. There'll be the uh, power agreement as well with ESCOM. Uh, There'll hopefully be some uh, news around an offtake. Um, as I said, the, from what we know with the uh, offtakes that we've been bidding on, we're, we're getting very, very close in terms of what the utilities are prepared to pay and what our pricing mechanism looks like. So I think we're getting quite close to doing something on that. Um, I think there's also an opportunity out there. We haven't really touched on it a great deal, but we do recognize it. Um, that there's probably within this, within the period now, there's probably some opportunities for some growth, whether that be through some exploration stuff, whether it be through some M&A activity, consolidation and all that kind of stuff. So we're starting to have a little bit of a think about that as well. And one of the reasons why we've pursued that is that we do have a decent project with a 10-year life of mine but we do know the utilities like to sign long-term contracts that maybe are the eight years, that sort of time frame, and they like to have a bit of a tail on it. So if we could look at extending ourselves to become a 12 or potentially even a 15-year life of mine, 
I think that would be really, really good from our uh, utility negotiating perspective as well. So we are starting to think a little bit about those things as well. I think this is probably a really good time for us to to, to investigate those. And have you got the kind of the geological expertise, the the uh, kind of an exploration team, which is kind of um, you can apply to your kind of a, kind of get going on your own ground, or are you looking at other people's ground? No, we've got enough within our own team on site. So we've got our own geologists and that kind of stuff on site. So with regard to the exploration on our mining license, we've done some exploration around there. I think there's a little bit of growth that we could get there, but not too big. But what I'm really interested in is some of our exploration tenements that we have, which are down south, about 90 kilometers or so away from Calakera. There's a resource on one of them called Livingstonia. It's about 5 million pounds or so. We did a drill program early last year on Chalumba, which is next door to Livingstonia, hit some uranium mineralization there. The on-site team is capable of running those sorts of exploration programs to do exploration, but also to do infill drilling. We've got our geologists here in Perth, consultants that we use, that we can use to do our resource estimates and all that kind of stuff. So certainly we're well set up for that. We've actually tasked our geologists on site as well to do a bit of a review of other potential target areas within Malawi to start off with that potentially might have some uranium mineralization. And the reason why I say that is I know through my conversations with some of the other companies that are looking at rare earth opportunities, they have certainly come across uranium mineralization. And I think there may be some opportunities for us to peg some new ground as well and do some exploration work around those as well. So we are intent on terms of getting our development plans in place such we can execute Calacara, but we do have in the back of our mind and a little bit of activity we're doing around, you know, how can we grow the life of mine? The, what, the easy ones are the exploration, but I think there's some opportunities out further afield as well that we should be considering. Great. And um, your cash position, where are you at the moment? 17.9 million Aussie dollars as of the end of the March quarter. Okay, good. So that's enough dollars to see us through all the activities that I've spoken about. And effectively, the next time we come out to do a raise will be to raise the capital that we require for the refurbishment of the plant. Thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much. It's good to meet you.